and we're not going to really have that today. It's going to feel more like maybe a classroom. A uh, little bit of lecture, but I also have some assignments for you tonight. Uh, that we, and really implementing something that hopefully will characterize not only during this series, but um, activity we should be engaged in uh, henceforth to the Lord's coming. And so when we looked at our, the elements last week and we built that whole idea of what needs to be shared in the gospel and how the world has attacked many elements of those, including the concept of right and wrong of sin, which we're going to deal with uh, uh, coming up here very, very quickly next week. Not next week because we have our business meeting, the week after. Uh, but we want to... Uh, and I want you to know I've broken those down really into five categories, and we're going to be addressing those. It'll take multiple weeks in each category, but we, I want to give you kind of an outline. This is your, uh, what's it called, when you, the syllabus, right, that nobody reads when you start a course and they give you a syllabus. So I'm going to give you an outline. They tell us not to do that very much. Uh, when I was in seminary, they'd always say, you know, don't just give everything up in the first, then they'll want to listen the rest of the time. And so if you don't think you need to come for any of this, then you'll know what you're missing, I guess. So we have tonight's session, and then we're going to be uh, looking at uh, four, I'm sorry, five categories that we're going to bring all those elements together we talked about last week into it. And so I'm going to give you the titles. This is really unusual for me to have titles all the way through. Um, Mr. McKelp knows that because I don't give him titles. I just say I'm going to talk about this. Uh, I should just give you titles that make you try to guess. So, But here we go. Uh, we're going to start off by confronting sin in a relativistic, moral, or Im, a morally relativistic world. Then we're going to move to revealing truth in a subjective world. And then we're going to be talking about presenting salvation in a self-absorbed world. And then we're going to be calling to decision in a non-committal, wishy-washy world. And then we're going to talk about discipleship in a disloyal world. Okay, so that's how we're going to break down these five elements. All those elements of evangelism we're going to break down into those five categories to talk about how do we evangelize the lost in this era. And really, it, it, it's all eras, but in this particular time when the Bible says that it's going to be particularly difficult um, because of what we see on the very near horizon that uh, all the things that stated about the end times makes it evident that it'll be, there'll be a real hardness that you're going to have to engage in, uh, not just regionally. And so we have some scripture passages about hard regions, and we're going to be using those extensively, including tonight a little bit. But as we go further, we're going to be using them a lot more. Uh, but again, biblically, it's a hardness of heart that's not only in the world, but it's in the entire world, and it's also in religious circles. And certainly that was the case. Jesus had to deal with the Pharisees and their hardness, um, but in the church as well. And so we're going to talk about internal evangelism as well as external evangelism and how we address that. So that's the outline of what's coming. It's, it's not going to be five weeks worth. It's going to be uh, probably closer to 15 uh, probably two or three for each of those, I would say. Uh, I haven't really filled out all of my outlines, and, um, and the con I have a lot of 
passages, and I got a lot of ideas. And, and uh, if you've ever seen how I write a book, you would, I don't know if that's how other people write books or not, because I've never watched them do it. But uh, I just go with an outline, then I do sentences, and then I build on sentences to make paragraphs. And, and then I edit and start over again, because usually it's not very good the first time through. Um, I don't always have that opportunity with sermons, though, so that's why I pray for the Spirit's unction a lot more. So tonight, uh, before we get into that, we want to address one particular element, and that is the element of prayer in respect to our evangelism in the end times. Now, uh, one of the assignments that I'm going to have for you, and I would like to, you to bring that thoughtfully and carefully uh, bring that with you uh, for next week even. I know it's a business meeting, but I really want to invite you to bring that with you and so we can compile a prayer list. Is I'm going to ask you to bring the name of at least one person and up to three. I don't want 20 people on, but one to three people that you want us to pray for with regard to the gospel, that you would like to share the gospel with that individual. And that's going to be contradictory to what I have to say tonight, <laughs> but um, you'll hopefully you'll understand why we're doing that and how that's going to work. Now, does that mean those are the only people we expect you to share the gospel with, or we anticipate that? Well, no. It's just that that's someone that God has laid on your heart that we can put up before the Lord in prayer and uh, to engage in, in prayer with you for that individual. And it doesn't mean that you can't add to that list, uh, but I fear that much of our prayer list is about our own needs and interests. It's about our well-being rather than the mission that, the, that God has given us. And so I'm going to ask you to build that, to prayerfully consider that, to, to reflect upon that, and maybe you could just blurt that out right now, right? But I want you to write it down. And I want you not just to write down a name and give it to me. I want you to write down the name and, who, and your name. And you'll understand that by the time we're done tonight. And so that's what we'd like to do. We're going to build that list and hopefully have it two weeks from tonight ready to, for us to pray over and to take home with us uh, and to add to our, our regular prayer element of, of uh, our ministry, one to another and to our world. When we usually talk about prayer, um, uh, of course we are talking to the body of Christ, because the only prayer that is really uh, effectual for the unbeliever is the prayer for redemption, for deliverance, for salvation, where they come to God and they, they uh, confess their need, and their condition, and they ask for his uh, grace and mercy, his forgiveness, uh, his presence in their life. And so uh, we're not really uh, talking about that. And a lot of times when people approach you to pray for them, it's almost invariably about what? Help me out. Something they want or need, their need. Uh, usually it's either health or finances or job or their whatever, it's, it's usually relationships, something like that, and usually they're coming to you and say, oh, pray for me for this, uh, and when we do that, we too often focus our prayer there on their felt needs, and that's okay, 
but to understand that God calls us to something much more substantial than that with regard to praying for one another. We're going to be investigating this a little bit. So I have one challenge for you here this evening. I would like you to give me a verse, and I'm not saying they aren't there, I haven't been exhaustive in this, uh, but just uh, on the top of your head, uh, and this is going to maybe startle you a little bit, I would like you to give me the passage where it tells you to pray for unbelievers. There's a handful of them, not necessarily in the context that they might get saved. That's really not the context of the one or two passages that should come to mind. Uh, how many passages can you think of that instruct you to pray for unbelievers, for their conversion? Okay, you have the prayer of Christ for those that are crucifying you, the prayer of Stephen for those that are stoning him. Uh, where we, but that is really hold them guiltless for this single act is really what they're requesting, right? Hold them guiltless for this act uh, because of their ignorance. And so we have those prayers. Any other examples or instructions? I'm really looking for instructions. Uh, those are examples. I'm looking for an instruction for you to pray or request for you to pray for unbelievers. All right, to pray for those that persecute you, uh, pray for them, curse them, don't curse them, but pray for them. Uh, that'll probably be about the closest instruction, but it doesn't tell you what to pray for them, does it? Does it tell you to pray for their salvation? No, not directly. You can indirectly infer that, certainly, but we're supposed to pray for them, for their lives to be blessed rather than then curse them is, is the opposite. The opposite of cursing is pray for them. So I assume that as we're praying a blessing upon them, we understand that we can infer that blessing is the gospel because that is the most blessed state is to be in this state of being forgiven. I, I just want to throw that out to you and you can study on that a little bit and meditate on it for a while because I have and there are very, very few instances that you will find that kind of instruction even in our Lord's model prayer, uh, you don't really find that. What do we find? Our Father, you, you know it, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Correct? Then what? Forgive us our trespasses in accordance with how we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, or the evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. So we have the Lord's Prayer, um, and so much of that prayer is focused on God and ourselves. There is one discussion about forgiveness in there, but it is forgive us in accordance with how we forgive others. And so, even in the model prayer, we really don't have, uh, even though there is a, a, a understood backdrop of our relationships with others in terms of our walk with God, uh, in the forefront, is there's really no example of that kind of praying that we often talk about in terms of evangelism. So, is, is prayer really a necessary part of evangelism? Well, certainly it is but probably differently than what we think of. Should we pray for lost people? Well, certainly. 
and we're going to talk about how and what we're going to pray for them with respect to uh, uh, what we are really, and so much of our praying for the lost is really bad theologically. <laughs> and it really doesn't fit what you really believe, but you say these things, and I say them, I catch myself saying them too, um, and I'm like, what am I saying? You know, that's not God's job. Why am I asking him to do that? That's not my theology. That's not what he proclaims in his word. And so uh, we want to transform our prayer into uh, biblical praying, and that means thoughtful praying. A lot of times we say these things because we have been hearing them all our lives, and they just kind of flow out not very thoughtful. And I want us to have thoughtful praying uh, in that respect. And that doesn't mean you can't repeat it. Once you've thought through it, in fact, it is good to have that, uh, those phrases that are accurate to be used uh, and reused uh, but, uh, because they're cor biblically correct. Now, I, I want to say something right now, though, lest you fear praying. Okay, oh, I prayed it wrong. Uh, the Bible says that there is an interpreter for you. Okay? And maybe by the end of tonight, one of the things you're going to appreciate more about the Holy Spirit is how much interpretive work he has to do for you. Um, because we pray so poorly. Not just in terms of infrequently, but even the content of our praying is so poor. And so uh, we're going to strive to be better prayers, try to give the Holy Spirit a little bit of a break, uh, make his job a little bit easier, um, but also for our own benefit. Because if I'm praying something before God that is inaccurate and the Spirit takes that and understands our heart and mind and brings that before God um, in a proper request, but we're still looking for what we asked for because we are not sure how Holy Spirit translated that into what we should have been praying for. But the Bible says you don't know what to pray for as you ought to. And so that implies that we're never going to attain to this perfect prayer language. Uh, the Holy Spirit's still going to do his work. So I don't want you to walk out of here fearful of praying. I want you to embrace it, but be thoughtful in our praying uh, with regard to evangelism in these days and, and also to be... Um, have a little different direction for it than maybe uh, we have traditionally done. Uh, and, and by traditionally, I mean, I mean really in our modern experience, because in olden days it wasn't that case, and in biblical times it wasn't that case. And so I just want to challenge you that there's relatively little in God's Word that instructs you to pray for unbelievers. Of course, when we get into the Old Testament, well, what is their instructions with regard to non-Israelites? You can kill Canaanites, right? Uh, you're going to judge Egyptians. You're going to judge Assyrians. You're going to judge Babylonians. You're going to judge uh, the, the enemies of Israel. Uh, well, even, even when it's the Moabites and, and all those other people on the other side of that Jordan, uh, and we don't often think of, well, did they pray for Rahab? Did they pray for all these Egyptians that left Egypt with them when they walked out of Egypt? It says it was a mixed multitude. Did they pray for them? And yet we find that uh, 
Moses did pray for his people, that mixed multitude, uh, to keep God's hand from destroying them. So we do have some uh, instruction in this area. So I'm not trying to say that there is none, but I think we are missing the primary instruction that we do have much uh, more in terms of examples and instruction for the church to participate. So we want to be praying for the gospel to penetrate our community. And so let's uh, look at, I have five passages here I want to go through. I'm going to do one that's indirect, and then I'm going to get into the direct passages. Yes. So how are we praying for evangelism to happen in our community through this ministry? And that's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about their prayer or their necessity of coming to, to God on bended knee, but of our responsibility in terms of praying for evangelism to occur. I just gave you an assignment to bring us the names, to, bring, to name names, to be specific. And I believe there is value in specificity, just as there is value in generality. So I can be very general because I don't know who I will encounter this week who may be ready to hear the gospel. And that would require a generalized praying, correct? And that's what we're going to see a lot of in Scripture. Uh, but we're also, I think, um, in our preparation, uh, need to be praying for these individuals that God has put upon our heart, that we see opportunities and we uh, desire to lay hold of those opportunities. And if you don't have anyone, if you say, I can't name anyone, then maybe that's what you need to be praying about for someone be laid on your heart. But let's look at, I want to turn to Romans 15, first of all. And Paul is, the whole book of Romans, I really need to give a kind of overview here a little bit. The whole book of Romans is written, again, to a body of saints in a place where Paul has never gone. He knows some individuals in that church, but, and really the whole book of Romans is a letter to them describing to them the gospel that he preaches to make sure that they're on theological footing, that a foundation that is the same, that they know what he preaches and that that is what they hold to and that we, they share that gospel. And so when we get to chapter 15, the end half of that chapter, he's going to talk about his plan to join with them and that having established what his doctrine is, what his the message of the gospel that he preaches is uh, that he can now enjoy a deeper fellowship with them ahead of time, and perhaps even if there are unbelievers among that number, that they have an opportunity to respond to that message. That's why the Romans Road exists, and that's why we use Romans so much in salvific passages. There's so many salvific passages in Romans. Well, why? Because Paul is telling them, this is the gospel that I preach. And he's giving them the long version. Okay, so now we come to verse 22 uh, in Romans 15. It says, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you. At first, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, and it, 
For it pleased those of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So he's got an errand to run, and then his plan is to get back and visit them. He didn't realize he'd be under, that the Roman government would pay for that trip and uh, house him during that trip. Uh, verse 27, it pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual blessings, their duty is also ministered to them in material things. Therefore, when I perform this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And then we come to verse 30. This is the key one I want to take off from. This is, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So here is a man of God who has now requested very strongly, that's why they use the word beg there, I beg of you, to be praying for me. And he gives a very specific prayer request. His prayer request is that I may be delivered from uh, those who don't believe, that my service there will be um, beneficial for the saints of Jerusalem, that I can discharge this duty from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. So he has these three requests. And with regard to unbelievers, his request is kind of odd. He doesn't say that I can impact them with the gospel. He says I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. That part of his request for praying is, um, I'm going to Jerusalem and Judea. And uh, if you don't think Paul was a little fearful of that, um, he hasn't had good experiences there. And he's not going to have a good one when he goes back. And so he's there and he says, listen, I know there's a lot of unbelievers there. They hate me and they're going to want to hunt me down. Is that what happened? Well, you've read the book of Acts. You know that that is what happened. That they did go after him. That they did arrest him. They did have all those guys that swore they wouldn't eat until they killed him, which they got real skinny fast because they didn't get a chance to. Um, so you have all of that happening. Did God answer the prayers that Paul requested he be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe? Yes, he was delivered by being arrested and then being appealed to Caesar and then going on and even being delivered on, in the shipwreck and on and on. So there was that. Did he discharge his responsibility? Was the gift presented to the church there in Jerusalem in their great need? Yes, he did. Uh, and that then I can come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you. So he wanted to have that contact with them, and he did. Did he ever get to Spain? We don't know. Traditionally, he was released, went to Spain, and then came back, but we don't know that. That's not really, that's extra-biblical tradition, but uh, um, it, does, it has a lot of weak evidence behind it. We have no church identified in Spain that we can attribute to him starting. Uh, and so uh, he does get there. And so, but I want you to focus, notice that in all this traveling, in all of this, that his focus is on, um, you know, that ministry is going on that it, uninterrupted. That, it, that I, 
am able to be successful in ministry. That's really his goal and aspiration. Okay? Now that's the, the, the most subtle request. We're going to put it like that. This is a backdrop request. It seems like there's just no interest in sharing the gospel. But yet his statement is, is that he is um, all concerned about it. Verse 29 says, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And so the gospel is what this whole book is about. Here's the gospel that I preach. And now he's saying, listen, I beg of you to pray for me and that I may be delivered, that uh, my service for Jerusalem is accepted, and that I can get to you with joy by the will of God. Now let's go to some real strong statements that are easy. Let's start in the book of Colossians. You usually do these in, in the order you arrive at them in Scripture, but I'm going to do them um, in a little different order. Colossians chapter 4. Verse 2 is the instruction to the church to pray. First word in Greek. Uh, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, while you're earnestly praying and being thankful and vigilant, that means you're going to persist in it. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And this is the prayer request. The prayer request from the mission field. He's not going to talk about who needs to be shared the gospel with. What is he praying? He's praying for open doors to share the gospel. And that he speaks the gospel in those open doors as he should. And I believe this is the twofold part of praying for evangelism that we don't do. We don't really pray this prayer that Paul says, please, while you're earnestly, vigilantly praying with thanksgiving, uh, please make sure to include us in your praying for ministry. And here's the ministry that God would open to us a door for the word. I am praying for an opportunity to speak the gospel. That's what that means. I'm praying for opportunity to speak the gospel. I'm not real concerned about who it is I'm speaking to. I'm praying for an opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should be praying for that, for opportunities to share Christ. Secondly, is that that I may manifest, that is to show as I ought to speak that I can show the gospel in my, in my communication, which, isn't, which is not just verbal but nonverbal, that I should do it the way I should, that I will do it the way I should, that I will speak the gospel as I ought to, that I will show it forth to people. And so I want an opportunity to share the gospel, and I want to do it well. I want to do it the way it should be done. Now, as we go through this study, we're really focusing in on that latter half. How do we do it in a world that doesn't want to hear it and is, and is numb to the gospel message, really, by, by the society? Well, that is part of this praying 
But I want you to notice he is praying for, he wants you to pray for opportunities, and then he wants you to pray that he, now this is a veteran missionary who has preached the gospel far and wide. This is not newbie. He's preaching to the church in Colossae. Where is Colossae? What country? Colossae is in Greece. You went there, didn't you, Andrea? Yes. It's in modern Greece. And so, is that in the first missionary journey? No. Never got to Macedonia in the first missionary journey. Never got crossed over to there. So, he's a veteran missionary by the time he gets to Colossae. He's already been there. There's already a church established. And now he's writing back to him. And what is he still praying, asking for prayer for? I've gone on one, two, three missionary journeys, and I'm still asking for this prayer. For opportunity to share Christ, and that I do it well. That I do it the way I should do it. And that is the way we should be praying with regard to evangelism. That we have opportunities to speak the gospel out, and that we do it well. Because frankly, I, I don't need to give you here, I'm not going to give you, here's, uh, you know, and I've been through these evangelism programs, you know, here's this, here's, here's the words you need to speak, and here they are, and, and here's the order in which you do it all. Um, and and I, I've have those, I, I have, if you want that to break the ice in your mind over sharing the gospel with people, that's fine. But my problem is, is that you, it handcuffs you if you think that's the only way to do it. We're going to talk about some of those ways of the right response, and hopefully just from the outline you can see what the right order is, these five things. Um, but we're going to focus in on that. I want to pray to do it well. And here's a veteran evangelist saying, pray for me that not only that I have opportunity, but that I do it well. Because certain circumstances require something very different. Did Paul need that here on his way to um, Jerusalem? Boy, did he ever. Is he going to share the gospel even to the enemies? Yeah, he has an opportunity to do that before the Sanhedrin. He has an opportunity to do that in front of Roman soldiers. He, remember, he gets on those steps and he turns around and says, can I speak to them? He says, okay. And he turns around and starts speaking Hebrew, which means the Roman soldier had no idea what he was saying. But everyone else got real quiet. He's like, wow, this guy has a commanding presence. You know, he started speaking in Hebrew. I don't know what he's saying, but they're all listening very intently, and then they want to kill him. <laughs> and so he had that opportunity, and then he had the opportunity, remember, between Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and all he had the opportunity to share his testimony. So he was praying, uh, and so we find here in Colossae and, and other things, I want the opportunity, but I want to do it right. And, and speaking to these people who wanted to stone him to death because under a false accusation that he brought uncircumcised people into the Temple Mount, it was very different than how he's going to share the gospel to the king. Right? And then how he's going to share the gospel on that island after the shipwreck when he gets bit by the serpent and doesn't die. And they all go, ooh. And now they want to worship him. And now he's got to share the gospel in that setting. And so when we start to understand what Paul's praying for is that I need always that same wisdom of doing it well. That I manifest, that I show the gospel to people the way they need it showed to them, that I have that wisdom, that God would grant me that wisdom, and that I would do it the way I would, should do it. And also, 
uh, the idea of oughtness isn't about doing it the right way, but doing it. I ought to speak the gospel. You ought to be sharing the Christ with people. You ought to be engaging them. And I know it takes a level of, of courage and boldness to do that. There's risk involved. Um, and, but it should not be a fearfulness that I don't know what to say. What does the Bible promise you when you are asked for the reason that hope was within you? What are you supposed to say? Well, it says that you don't have to plan ahead. Because really you can't very well, can you? I know that you have all these evangelism programs, and I, I have one Bible that I, we used, uh, evangelism method, um, in the Salt Lake City Olympics that they wanted us to use. And they sent us the book and used this, so we all had our special little Bible marked just right so that we could go through these verses in this order and have the people. So I, I did their methodology, uh, but, but frankly, there was a time or two that that just wasn't appropriate. So what are you going to do? Sit there and say nothing? No, there, there is, understand, I have to rely not on this methodology, but, and I'm saying the methodology doesn't work, it's just not always appropriate. But I'm going to rely upon Holy Spirit to tell me what to say, and that requires prayer. So we ought to be praying this kind of praying that Paul says. Pray for opportunity, and that's really what we're praying for. When you give me a list of names, I'm praying for you to have an opportunity to share Christ with that name. I say, Pastor, you're not praying for that person? No, I'm praying for you to have an opportunity to share Christ with that person. I might pray something for that person, but I'm really praying for you that an opportunity will come and that you will lay hold of that opportunity and you'll do it well. Why am I praying to God for that? Because he has promised by his spirit to direct you to speak it well. To give an answer to those that challenge you. And so I'm praying for you that you're walking in the spirit, that you're dependent upon him, that you're in tune with him, that you have his sword in your life, the word of God in your life, that he can use to then communicate the gospel effectively. Because there's no way that I can predict or think to prepare you for every conversation and how to turn it to Christ. Right? No one can do that. And so we're going to uh, pray for opportunity to do it because we should and to do it right. Well, let's go on. Let's just see if this is the norm. And you know it will be because that's where we start. We're here in... Uh, let's go back to Ephesians. This one's a very familiar one. I was going to start here, but then I changed my mind. So we come to Ephesians chapter 6, and this is the armor of God passage. And we always leave off and forget the last thing because he doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't attribute it to a piece of clothing armor. Uh, and, but let's look at where one of the elements of the armor of God Oh, we can read them all. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, put, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We're going to be referencing a lot of this through the course of the study. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which I already referenced today. Verse 18, 
the one we always leave, tend to leave off. Praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So you're praying for all the saints. That's the holy ones. You're praying, supplicating in the Spirit uh, in, for your brethren. So we pray for our brethren across the earth, uh, in our neighborhood, in our church, in our family. We pray for the brethren. And then he adds this in verse 19, and for me. Well, what are you praying for Paul? That utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And there's exactly the same term used there. The same concept is there. Why are we praying? How are we praying in, re, in, in reference to evangelism? Well, there's the same thing, that I, I should be praying as I ought to, uh, that I may be bold, uh, that I may, and he asked for boldness twice, I open my mouth and make known the mystery of, of the gospel. And then the opportunity statement is that utterance may be given to me. And so here he is in chains, and he's saying, I, I would like opportunities to share the gospel. Even in Rome, Paul had that, didn't he? Did he have opportunity to share the gospel even while he was under house arrest in Rome? Yes, he did. Uh, people could visit him, and people did. And for the first group of people to visit him weren't Roman Christians. From what we could tell, the first group to visit him was a bunch of Jewish people from the synagogue saying, and he said, well, this is what I've been, you know, I've been sent here to be tried under Caesar. They said, we haven't heard anything at all about this. Well, now he gets a chance to put in his story first. That's pretty nice. And so that's what he prayed for, that I have opportunity, that utterance may be given to me, that I could have boldness to use those opportunities to speak the truth, and that I could speak it properly, the right way, that I present the gospel uh, in, a, in, 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 it says, to make known the mystery of the gospel, so that it can be understood by the listeners. Brother, we need to be praying for one another to help the gospel go forth, more than we need to be praying for the lost. That's almost sacrilege. You think, that just doesn't sound right, Pastor, but it's biblical. We need to be praying that we have opportunity to share the gospel, that we are bold in laying hold of that gospel opportunity, to, and that we speak it well, that we speak it properly, that we make it known to people, that we uh, show the mystery to them, that we open the, the, their, their uh, minds uh, and, and at least give them access to it uh, without having them wonder, what are you talking about? Let's go to another one. I, got, I, I don't have to go on because of, they're all very similar to one another. Now we've got the first one down. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> okay. What's Corinthians about? The carnal church. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He has a scathing letter. He's going to be telling them to repent. He's going to be telling them to stop behaving so worldly. This is a worldly, fleshly-minded church and that has a lot of things that need to be addressed. They're not doing communion right. They're not doing the love feast right. People are dying. People are sick. 
Uh, they don't have, the spiritual gifts aren't being used right. Uh, there is just almost nothing going on right in this church. Not exactly a church that you would ask them to pray for you, right? There are no spiritual conditions to be praying for you, right? That's not how, what Paul thinks. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're still having problems. I, I still want to focus. This is chapter 1. They've done some improvement, but there's still a lot of work. There's still another letter. We'll back up into verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Verse 11. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through the many. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity, godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. And so he is contending that they have been helping in his ministry of sharing the gospel by their prayers for him. You are being assisting me. You're, you're also helping together in prayer for us that many thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And so we have this partnership, and Paul says, listen, we are partners in the gospel. You are praying for me, even as we are out there doing the work, and then there are benefactors that, from the ministry of the gospel that goes out there. So you have all these ones who have benefited from my ministry, but I've benefited from your prayers. The dependency of Paul. So if Paul understands his dependency on the prayers of even a carnal church, how necessary it is that I have prayers backing up what I'm doing. And I would contend that one of the things we need to be focused more and more on in the end times is that we need to saturate our evangelism with praying for each other the way Paul asked the church to pray for him, even a carnal church like Corinth. And so he comes to the Corinthians, he says, please, you've been partner, you, you've helped me, and, you, and, I've, and I've been delivered, I have been, have had these opportunities, and the gift has been granted uh, to us through many, and then he goes on and talks about his whole preaching uh, and the benefit that it goes on and on and on. All those that benefited, he says, those all boil down to not just me sharing the gospel, but you praying for me to share the gospel. Your prayers for me. Well, he says for us, because he very, very seldom traveled alone. Uh, Athens is about the only place we find him alone. He's always got an entourage of men with him. And so he uses the first person plural. Well, let's go to the last one this evening, 2 Thessalonians, that Paul uses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that's, yep, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence, Lord, concerning you, both that you will do, that you do and will do the things we command. Now the, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the patience of Christ. Very interesting. Paul anticipates encountering enemies of the gospel. 
And what is his consistency here is to be, to be delivered from unreasonable men, to be delivered from those that uh, won't believe, that choose to, to reject the message. Uh, and he doesn't say pray for them. He says pray for us that we can have opportunity to share Christ, that we'll be bold in doing that. We'll do it right, certainly. Uh, and that it will go swiftly or run. Uh, the word swiftly is... That adverb is added um, because the word run entails that. That it will just go, it'll just run through in his ministry and be glorified. So he wants the word of the Lord to run swiftly and be glorified. He wants it to go out as fast as possible. We see this, this going to be played out in some of our other passages in our study where it talks about the urgency of the end times and how the, the, the day of salvation is coming to a close and therefore there should be an urgency not to do it less, but to do it more and to do it uh, with that sense about it. And, but here he says, listen, pray for us because we want the word of the Lord to run swiftly and be glorified. We want the gospel to go forth. We want, and not just the gospel in terms of the front end of evangelism, but the gospel in terms of the entirety of evangelism, which does include discipleship. It does include that element that we establish those who have made this profession of faith. Okay, and that's number five on our outline list that we talked about uh, of discipling, discipling a disloyal world. And so we want to have them become followers of Jesus Christ and as the completion of what is the coin of evangelism, the two sides of that. And so what does he need. He needs from them praying. Please pray for us. So if we sense the urgency of the hour that these are the last days, we should not be praying less, we should be praying more, but we should also be recognizing that while we're praying for opportunity, we're praying to, to do what we say what we should say and to say it well, and we're praying uh, uh, also for protection because we realize some people are going to hate that message and then hate us for telling them that message. And Paul consistently says, listen, um, I'm not going to back down, and when you're bold for Christ, not only are you going to see people get saved, you're also going to see people hate you. It's going to be polarizing. There's going to be very few people in between. Uh, now, in Athens, there were, right? There were people that says, oh, we'll hear about this again. Uh, that was kind of a, a, a queer group. There in Athens, um, oh, I used a word you associate with something else, sorry. They're an odd group there. I have to keep my language updated, I guess. That uh, uh, th they're philosophers and are always talking about different things and they just want their ears tickled. But um, generally, very polarizing. You have this large group that want to hear the gospel and are flocking to hear it and, and are responding. And then you have this very a vocal group and violent group that respond against it. Uh, sometimes they're Jewish people, sometimes they're idol makers, right, in Ephesus. <laughs> Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. And just resounding through that uh, uh, Colosseum and echoing out over that uh, uh, port there. Uh, and so he's saying, protect me from that so that the gospel can keep going. Not because I don't want to have anything bad happen to me, but because um, I want to make sure that they don't stop 
those who are wanting to receive the word from hearing the word. And we're going to be talking a lot about that because I think that's what the enemy is doing more than anything else is keeping people from hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. To just distract them to infinity so that they never think that they might need to inquire what is this Christianity really about? And so what are the, they see portrayed in Hollywood's versions uh, and things like that that they think that's the gospel, what it's not. And so um, we need to pray similarly that God protects the message of the gospel and sometimes that requires protection of the messenger of the gospel. And Paul prays for that. If I want an open door, that means the gospel is preached there and that means I'm going to need a level of protection from those that are opposing it as well. And that needs to be in our praying. I didn't get to go into... Praying for unbelievers, I'll, I'll just share very quickly. Um, I don't find anywhere in God's word, Lord, save them. Forgive them because they don't, of, this, of, of this act, yes, but not in terms, because ultimately God has already paid the price to save them. He has already loved them. He has already provided for their salvation. He has already uh, done all that. So what is our prayer? Our prayer primarily should be for the gospel to go forth um, from our lips and opportunities be brought up. With regard to unbelievers who persist in their unbelief, um, what is the extent of our praying to God? Um, Well, its focal point needs to be what God has promised he will do continuously in this day of salvation. So he had a single provision historically. Uh, That's already established. There's no need to pray for that because that's already been made, right? Unless you believe in that you pray outside of time. Uh, That's accomplished. And so uh, what we are praying for is the continuing role of God in men's salvation. And that role is twofold. And number one, we just got done talking about that God will send forth laborers into the field. Right? That's praying for what we just talked about. For opportunities and to say it well and to say it boldly and all that. And number two, the second element that God continues to do in the day of salvation is convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we can pray for him to send out labors and to convict the world. Because that's God's ongoing activity. So he has a historical one that's already accomplished. We have his ongoing activity in the world. And then, of course, he responds to their faith by saving them, by delivering them of the uh, sanctification, the justification, sanctification, glorification, and, and, and all that is entailed there. But the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is, is a necessary element, so we pray for that, and God is faithful to do that and persist that. So we're praying for opportunity, we're praying for those to go out with the gospel, and we're praying uh, because God says you should be praying. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into his field. So that's what we should be praying. Send us opportunities, send us out as opportunities, and then praying for 
Holy Spirit to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. Yes. Right, in Romans 10, he talks about how can they hear without a preacher and how can they preach without, unless they've been sent and how, you know, that whole scenario of, which is the counterbalance to Romans 8. All the Calvinists want to read Romans 8 and none of them want to acknowledge Romans 10. You know, I could just as easily say Romans 10 is the uh, modus uh, operandi, whatever the, Moda, the, the way of God saving people. I could just as easily pick Romans 10 as Romans 8. They're counterbalanced. And so, um, yeah, so that's what we pray for. So don't go to God and ask him to do, you know, lead this person to faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Okay? Bring this person, you know, draw them in your, well, God draws all, calls all men everywhere to repentance, does he not? As soon as you say, Lord, draw him to salvation, you are saying, God, it's your fault if they don't get saved because you haven't drawn him. No, you can pray for God to convict them of their sin, and this is going to be a part of our study, of his righteousness and of a sure judgment to come. Because that's what God says, that's my job. Not, it's not our job, it's his job. And pray for workers. Well, that means praying for these, you are all workers in God's field. So we should be praying for each other when that means I need to have some knowledge and so about your field. And I'm asking you to bring in via the mechanism of a name to help us pray for you, not the name. Does that make sense to you? And so that's why I say, give me about two or three because there are usually two or three environments that you are having relationships with in the work, in neighborhood, and family, um, categorize them that way. Um, but we're really praying for opportunity beyond that name, but inclusive of that name. Because this is a relationship that you have or that you engage in on a regular or irregular basis or that is heavy on your heart. Well, I want to pray for you to have opportunity, to have boldness, to say it well and to be protected from unbelievers, which protects your audience from these that don't want them to hear the gospel. I think that's critically important. Okay, so a little bit different than maybe you've thought praying for evangelism was about. Um, and uh, I, I, this series is, a, when I'm in mission conferences, when I was a missionary, this was my favorite series to preach. And I would do it. I would take two or three nights. I did it all in one night. <laughs> and I would just go through. And people were like, I never thought. I never understood that part of my responsibility for you is really to pray for you to have these things. And uh, they thought we should just pray for the heathen. Well, I don't find that. I find pray for the believers to have opportunity, boldness, to speak the right, the truth, and to reveal it properly, and to be protected from from those that are uh, opponents of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word, and we pray you might uh, just help us to share Christ, to have boldness, to have opportunities, to lay hold of those opportunities, and Lord, knowing that you go before us, that you uh, have promised to convict that you've promised to 
bring to our mind and to remind us of what we already know of your truth, to communicate it properly. Lord, we uh, pray that if there's anything that hinders our walk with you that is interrupting that relationship, that you would uh, just convict us of that, that we might have it purged, that we might have our attention and sensitivity to your Spirit's guide in our evangelism. Lord, we need the gospel to go out with great power in these days to overcome all the opposition that we will encounter. And we need your help uh, in us. And so, Lord, we pray that you might uh, just work in us, that the gospel might go forth to your glory and praise. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.